Every year, artists from all fields of the arts and from all parts of the world travel to Saari residents in southwest Finland to focus on their artistic work and exchange ideas and experiences. The Saari residence aims to be a test platform for the future that is sustainable ecologically, socially and mentally. This podcast stems from themes that are essential in the residence's daily ecological activities. Together with invited experts, we talk about returning to our roots to restore nature and ourselves. My name is Mia Leine, and this is Reviving the Wild. Soil makes life possible. It's a mixture of organic matter, minerals, gases, liquids and organisms. And what does healthy soil look and feel like? You've probably seen TV adverts where a person holds a lump of healthy soil in their hands. Beautiful, brown, rich, airy, moist earth. Maybe a small and vibrantly green plant is growing in the middle. It's almost romantic. But does this image we have represent the reality of soil in agriculture today? Sara Kankanrinta is an environmental influencer and the chair of the Baltic Sea Action Group and the Carbon Action Platform. She is also one of the co-founders of the Kvidia Farm, which is located in Parainen, southwestern Finland. Kvidia is a pilot farm with an ecosystem approach. Everything there is done keeping in mind the diversity of nature and carbon capture. Farming at this location, however, isn't a new thing. Kvidia has been used as a farm for centuries, and the oldest surviving building in the area is a stone castle that dates back to the 15th century. Sara is extremely busy with all her roles and responsibilities, but I managed to meet up with her in a hotel lobby in Helsinki. In Kvidia, they focus on regenerative farming. What is that? And how is it different from the main model of agriculture? We're transforming the farm into regenerative farming to nurture biodiversity and uh, increase soil carbon in in the soil. Um, and in general, the idea of regenerative farming is that the more you farm, the better the nature is or the better state of the nature. And that is a paradigm change compared to the conventional, where we see nature only as a resource. And um, for me, it's a question about seeing nature in that sense that it could work with principles that humans think are very effective. But in regenerative farming, the principles are from the ecology. So that's where I think the paradigm shift goes. It's still, it's good for profitability. It's good for the farmer. It's good for the health of nature, but the idea is that nature knows and we learn from nature and we respect the ecological principles that we cannot change. We can change our own actions, but we can't change the ecology. So we try to be developing that kind of uh, thinking to farming and do a paradigm change with Carbon Action Network, which is a huge network already. But in farm, in, in real life, it really means that There's some principles that we have. There's always continuous uh, green cover 
in fields and in forest. Um, there's living roots, there's large and functional biodiversity above ground and underground. And um, we have animals, but animals we see as partners. We partner with them. They increase biodiversity and carbon storage better than we could do without them. So we develop this rotational grazing, which is a very uh, natural way of grazing the land and just um, actually increasing the photosynthesis from the plant. And... um, What else is there? Well, of course, then we have this, everyone knows with the crisis of Ukraine, that fertilizers uh, are limited and and very expensive. So we've been doing almost a decade of year for recycling the nutrients. So if we use fertilizers, it's always recycled and organic. Yes, a lot lot of different (laughs) methods that you use. Um, Can we talk a little bit more about the, you mentioned the natural environment is fields and forests Mm. um, and um, that you have animals, you are using, you are working with nature and with the animals rather than extracting from them. Maybe you could say that. You've been doing this for eight years now. Mm. Um, How has the natural landscape changed and the farm? Uh, Somewhat seven years, but... Yes, you can see the change. Maybe, well, in landscape, you can see that when we brought the animals back to the farm, it also brought a lot of different animals. So it brought insects, it brought birds and butterflies. So it has increased visible diversity, biodiversity that you can see. In the soil, which is, of course, 25% of all the biodiversity of Earth is in the soil, but we just can't see it and we don't know it so well. In the soil, you can see it with shovel, that when you take a piece of land or you put the shovel to the field, you can see what you can see, worms, and and maybe the best indicator of life in soil is the structure of soil. So if the soil is very compacted and um, hard, and and you you don't have to be a farmer or, or professional to see that, okay, this is not good soil when it's compacted and air or water doesn't go or move in the soil. And you mentioned you're capturing carbon in the soil through farming. How does that work? Could you let me know a little bit more? That's um, that's the photosynthesis you learn uh, in elementary school. It's it's the basic basic process of nature, but very somehow undermined at the moment. We always want to so- solve things with technology and, and maybe invent or innovate better photosynthesis. But I think that the billions of years of nature's work has has created so great um, efficiency there that you cannot beat that. So we try to give space to the photosynthesis and increase it every way we can. And plant takes the carbon from air and feeds it um, with its roots and micro roots and mycorrhiza feeds it to the microbes in the soil and microbes as an exchange, they give nutrients to the plant. That's how it works if there's good life in soil. So that process simply we have to keep alive and as in good uh, shape as possible because eventually when the plant feeds the carbon from air, so takes away carbon from the air and feeds it to um, microbes in liquid form, 
And then eventually when the microbe dies, the microbial necromass is the stable carbon that's in the soil. So it, you, mm-hmm. you sort of lock it there. And of course, uh, soil also breathes. So there's, uh, it's a living organism, so it also breathes out um, carbon dioxide. But the aim is to store more carbon than it breathes out. So that's what we're also measuring in the carbon action, that can we increase the carbon storage all the time. I think this is very interesting because especially agriculture has often been noted as a big polluter and a big emitter and talking about climate change and um, agriculture doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> look very good. So um, why do you think focus on farming on, to help curb climate change? Well, first of all, there's more agricultural land and pasture land in the world than there's forest. So, of course, we need to protect all the forest that we can and absolutely just nurture the forests as much as we can. But we have so big amount of agricultural land that we need to also get the ecosystem working in the agriculture. And that's also where you can maybe move a little bit faster because you can use, for example, perennial grasses, which um, it's faster than than making a good forest that actually stores carbon. So, and well, we need food. So that's obvious that we will have agriculture, but we need to shift the agriculture to the paradigm where ecology is really, really nurtured and used because if we have the ecology working you do have more resilience uh, for example when climate change brings extra heat or water or or whatever extreme weather so when the soil is in good condition when the ecology is working it actually has a lot of more resilience you can get crops instead of just losing this year's crops and etc so there's all the benefits that we should go to this regenerative um, direction. How about farmers that already have a conventional uh, farm? Well, Tweedo was a conventional farm, very conventional. Uh, monoculture, uh, pesticides, artificial fertilizers. But that's what we're trying to do also, that we try to test ways of transforming farm from that conventional state to regenerative and you don't even have to be officially organic you can do you can be conventional farming but just apply the regenerative methods in that pace that you feel that you can handle it you don't have to do everything at once you take step by step and in regenerative farming you can say that principles probably are the same around the world but then again farming is very local so you need to share local knowledge and that's what we're also trying to support For example, at Sari Residence, the usage of local knowledge has been included. The surrounding fields are leased to local farmers who are encouraged to use practices that capture carbon in the ground. But how about other cases, fields where conventional farming has been going on for many years or even decades? And as a result, the soil has become dependent on chemical fertilizers, or simply put, gotten bad. Is it possible to use regenerative farming in these places and recover the health of the soil? Sara says, yes, it is. 
She shows me pictures they took in Kvidia before they started regenerative farming. Back then, the soil was very compacted, very dense. The roots of the plants actually made an L shape. They had to change direction because they couldn't grow any deeper. And then she shows me a picture taken only two years later. The soil looks much more alive, like in those TV adverts. There's clearly air and water moving inside. To help with this transformation, they used a catalyst, wood fibers. And animals help the soil too. At Kvidia, horses, highland cattle and sheep are an active part of the farm's cycle. Well, horses, we have um, about 25, roughly, because we have the mothers and babies there, and then they live their first two years there, and then they go to training. But horses also help in this carbon sequestration because horse grazes, and we can cooperate with horse like we actually cooperate with the ruminants, sheep and cattle. And, um, for example, sheep, we have a long longer life maybe than normal sheep would have <laughs> but we consider them that they are they are partners and they can have a long life and we try to shift the paradigm in that sense also that that it wouldn't be so intensive because at some point i think farmers will get paid for increasing biodiversity and carbon so if you do that better with animals that's also one incentive that could shift things to better way. Absolutely. Um, the farm of Kvitia has a very long history, as you mentioned earlier, and historically manors and the lands around them formed this social and economic unit in society, and the local life was wrapped around the unit. What is this history of manners in southwestern Finland, and how do you think it's relevant today? Yes, in Finland, manners have always try to develop things and be in the front of developing. For example, agriculture it was always around, of course, tightly connected to agriculture. There's no manner without agriculture. So, for example, I think Kredia was the first place where there was apple trees in Finland. Or It's manners, when you look at the history, have taken a lot of influence from abroad and they're quite uh, good networks. Nowadays, when we're all very networked and everything is available um, digitally, it's of course different. But in history, it was a very uh, relevant thing to be connected to foreigners, for example, or or bring some knowledge from abroad. But in general, the idea of, of trying to develop things and uh, trying to test and, and bring something new has been relevant in, in manners, and that's what we're trying to do still. We're trying to test and fail and, and succeed in these uh, regenerative agriculture practices and science so that we can actually speed up the transformation. And if we talk about people, um, just normal people that maybe don't work at a farm, <laughs> uh, how can everyone get involved in, in this whole process as a consumer of food? I always say that connect yourself to food, connect yourself to food producing. 
I think actually that we need to have a stronger sense of food. Where does the food come from? So everyone knows that if you grow a potato or carrot yourself, you don't throw that away and you appreciate it and you see that as a miracle because it comes from a seed and all this. So if you're not growing your own food, then maybe get to know a farmer or somehow get connected to the food. And then we have, of course, organic labor. That's the first one. It means that no pesticides. That's a good start. (laughs) So organic farmers and organic food. Um, We do have carbon action uh, farmers who already label it, but it's not officially a certificate. But we do have those who label it to their products. So, of course, if you ever see a carbon action food producer, just support that. Once again, I'm reminded that we need to have a more holistic approach. Unfortunately, for too long, we have been in the state of thinking that the earth is abundant and you can just use its resources because they will be renewed endlessly. As we know, this is not the case. Especially soil has been extremely affected by unsustainable agriculture. And soil is the most vital capital that we have. I meet up with another extremely busy person, Sirpa Pietikainen, a member of the EU Parliament and the Finnish National Coalition Party. Sirpa acts as the chair of the Sari Residences Advisory Board, and she's been closely involved with the development of the residence since its opening in 2008. Sirpa points out that this is all connected. The health of the soil, biodiversity and food production. And she thinks that the shift to organic farming is one of the key things that farmers need to do at the moment. Actually, what sort of frustrates me is that this is not the news. We've discussed it more than 30 years ago already, and I know people before me have been doing it 50 years ago, sort of understanding what is the uh, circularity in food production. And that basically comes to organic farming and understanding how you use the resources, how you recycle them, and how you cultivate uh, uh, sustainably. And that matter if you have a uh, meat production, what is the sustainable levels and how you do it. We've talked it for so long, and still we do not even have higher targets than 15 or 17 percent of the production to be organic. We should have actually have the target within the 10 years to turn around 70 percent of our production to be organic and mainly based on uh, on uh, vegetables and uh, roots and all that that is much more healthy and uh, sustainable uh, way all in, in all matters. Would that be possible with if, if we're thinking about soil as this abundant thing that's just kind of going to be there forever? But I think with the fertilizers that we are using, a lot of the soil has been damaged a lot. So would that even be possible to have 70% organic farming? Well, it would take at least 10 years. Only 10? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it depends, but I'm looking uh, very much this kind of a European perspective. Mm. Somewhere it, it might take much, much longer, unfortunately, because you have degraded uh, basically sand as, as the soil instead of a, uh, organic living uh, soil. And you might have quite a lot of contaminants on, on the ground and, and so on. 
But yes, it would be possible. And this is the understanding that uh, I said the soil is organic matter and you have to preserve it. And it is in the connection with uh, what you farm, what kind of fertilizers, and they would need to be organic and recycled on, on, on the site you are using. And uh, this is the understanding that we should have in place and in our common agricultural policy as a precondition for any finance. And of course, we have uh, uh, we need to have a longer periods to trans- for transformation and, uh, and support for that. But if you never start, you never get there. And, and it is alar- alarming how big parts of the soil globally and even in Finland has turned out to be uh, dead mm. at the moment. And if you continue with this and with the climate change, it comes harder and harder to, to really find a good, healthy soil that you could sort of a transplant and uh, get the, the revitalization processes coming on. And it, it, it was really astonishing. I really need to mention this, that uh, when we dis- discussed about uh, uh, the different kind of pesticides, it said that, okay, they phase out, they eradicate, they, there's, there's no problem with that. And when we had this kind of a test among uh, other people and uh, us MEPs as well, and we ate normal or organic food, and we had high levels of pesticides in our urine. And wow. then after that, we discussed with quite a number of researchers, and they say, no, and you should sort of get it if Roundup kills. It kills, <laughs> and it kills also the soil. And this is the point that uh, this is very much interlinked as well, and that's why you should have this kind of a, a, a biological linkage of uh, victims and beasts uh, in in uh, starting from micro level to, to, to upper level. And uh, actually using too much of the pesticides, you you break the chain Mm. And you make the vegetation more vulnerable, so it is very controversial action. Uh, and Roundup is a common pesticide that is being used. Right? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, you just mentioned the EU Common Agricultural Policy. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how does it affect sustainable food production, and are there regulations for soil? This is the key. And we have to remember it's almost half of the total EU budget we are using in common agricultural policy subsidies. So it is quite the amount of money that we are putting. And I think that the farmers really do need and deserve this in this kind of a global competition. But it is a question what you subsidize and what conditions you put on there. Sometimes we think that the regulation is born to an... uh, empty room, but actually the existing way of subsidizing taxation and regulation is uh, very nurturing to some types of businesses and agriculture that matter. And then it leads to a situation where this has been very favorable for meat production, for big farming, for very industrialized uh, farming patterns, uh, for using chemicals, and artificial uh, fertilizers and, and, and so on. So actually that kind of structure we have and that kind of a farmers we have and that kind of a, a organization to speak in for their favor, we do have. So it is no wonder 
that the, when you try to change this agricultural policy, you have a huge lobby saying, no, 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 mm-hmm. you can't do it. it. It's difficult for us. I have a farm for 20,000 bigs. That actually happens in Poland, not in Finland. Uh, and if you make your structures like this or that, I can't sustain my business. And uh, then actually we do have two little uh, uh, people speaking in favor for another kind of structures. And the organic farmers associations are very weak. The consumers really hadn't sort of a cut on their feet and start fighting to change the uh, agricultural policy because it's very complicated. And uh, people tend to try to think, okay, if the farmers say they need this, then as a politician, you should support it. And it's very hard to, to, to fight against it. And that's why we formed uh, a bit more than 10 years ago this kind of a, a sustainable uh, food production uh, group in the European Parliament. So it is all, all of us trying to advocate and learn what that sustainable agriculture actually would be and how you, what you would need to do uh, for this uh, common agricultural policy to, to make it happen. Yeah, I guess uh, we're often talking about the farmers <laughs> in these kind of discussions and you can't really say that because it's there's so much kind of inequality in between the very big farm mm. farms and, and smaller uh, local organic farmers, yeah. Um, there's also something called the EU Biodiversity Strategy, which is uh, aimed to hold the loss of biodiversity and reverse the negative trend in biodiversity by 2030. What do you think the role of agriculture is in this and is it possible? It needs to be possible firstly, full stop. It needs to. Of course, we are talking quite a lot of the uh, climate change, but actually the biodiversity loss is much, much more grave and severe threat. And they are, of course, interlinked, as as, uh, we know. So we need a a healthier biodiversity with climate change because the climate change is destroying uh, biodiversity by uh, itself. And then again, losing the biodiversity actually speeds up uh, the climate change and uh, then we lack the abilities to uh, adjust ourselves. So, yes, I think that the biodiversity strategy, A, should be a law. So we should have this kind of a biodiversity law in the EU, telling that, okay, one third needs to be favorable for uh, the local biodiversity, so supportive to it. And uh, we would uh, need to have the national uh, and and local targets. Uh, What we've uh, uh, actually thought quite a lot, and it was Ilka Hanski, a very famous Finnish uh, biologist, um, who created this kind of a um, mosaic uh, protection concept. That means that one third of my slot where I live should be left in natural condition, one third of my area where I live, one third of uh, uh, the, the the city where I live, one third of uh, the, mm. the the county, one third of Finland, EU, and so forth. And so you can't sort of save biodiversity by saving a huge slot of the forest in in somewhere there in Lapland. 
It needs to happen here and now. And that then, of course, uh, goes that, of course, you do it and you need to do it in in, in housing uh, developments and in cities. But the big part is forests and agriculture. And you would need to uh, apply this principle of having one third of a natural habitats in all of the slots. And that should be, of course, compensated. Mm. And that should be a a, a demand, a, a precondition for the, uh, the, the subsidies. And uh, this would need to be a total turnover for the whole thinking of the biodiversity. We still think that, we, you know, we can use whatever 90% of the land cover to ourselves. And then, okay, you save some 10% pristine nature there somewhere and its deal is done. And no, this is not the way. Mm. You need to take it into account in, in small, up to small scale to bigger scale. And it needs to be present in all of the agriculture. And in the agriculture, it starts actually with the soil and the microorganisms there because there is the biodiversity too. Then it is what kind of uh, plants and animals you have. And there we, we've lost the biodiversity almost already. There should be the... By uh, the diversity of millions different kind of a local tomatoes or beetroots or whatever, or pigs or uh, whatever. And then there should be the uh, diversity of other vegetation, not only what is farmed there, but uh, what is the natural local uh, habitat. Both Sirpa Pietikainen and Sara Kankanrinta work on these issues on a very large scale. But everything goes back to a small scale, back to the ground, to the soil. Farmers are not the problem, they are part of the solution. In general, there's a lot of talk about the cost for farmers and the compensation that could help them change to regenerative agriculture. The question about cost is always present. And this is actually one of the key problems In the world of agriculture, we still tend to think that a healthy environment is something extra, like cherries on the cake. If you can't afford it, just leave it. So maybe we should focus more on the cost of non-action. What will happen if we do nothing? Because that cost is something that we as a society, we as inhabitants of this planet, simply cannot afford. My name is Mia Leine. Thank you for listening.